Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, Under Pressure. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 12, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Turning from Evil and Doing Good. You know, every once in a while when we're reading the scripture, we come to one of those places that summarizes the entire Christian conduct in the world. And if we, and here I mean the Christian church as a whole, seek to conduct ourselves in the world in such a way so that men and women will find Christ attractive, might I suggest 1 Peter 3, 9 to 12 is a very short, penetrating summary as to how to live in this world and make the gospel attractive. I mean, fail to do so, the way of Christ is going to be obscured to many. So let's read it. 1 Peter 3, 8 to 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You want to notice that verse 8 speaks of conduct among Christians. How are we to act towards each other? Then verse 9 speaks of conduct towards those outside who might be enemies of the gospel. And then verse 10 to 12 is a passage that's drawn from Psalm 34, 12 to 16, which is a general rule for those who seek to live wisely so that the outcome of their lives leads to good and not to evil. Remember that we're here as a summary as to how to live well and conduct ourselves in the world. First Peter is a book about Christians living in a world where persecution has been intensifying. And in these circumstances, how are Christians to conduct themselves? And Peter has given us examples. Submit to the government. Honor those who have been placed in authority. Slaves, submit to your masters. Christian wives are to be subject to their husbands. Christian husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way and view them as partners in the gift of life. But those are but some examples of Christian conduct. Can we summarize it? Well, yeah, we can. So first, let's summarize Christian conduct among the people of God. Let's start there. That's verse 8. And Peter gives us here five admonitions. And one commentator called those five commands the ideal portrait of the church. I suppose it is. So let's take them one at a time. First, have unity of mind. And the word unity, that can also be translated as having the same mind. In other words, be like-minded. Have unity of thinking. And one has to wonder what Peter thought here. Did he mean that he expected that we have unity on every single issue, whether it's, you know, on politics and how to raise our kids and the structure of the youth ministry in the church? We ought to think the same about everything. I don't think so. It's not possible that any group of people can think in the same way on a wide host of subject matters. I mean, being human, and we all have unique perspectives on a host of matters. And I, I think what Peter has in mind here is that the mind of Christ governs what we think. And in this way, our differences no longer divide us. We're able to keep the big things big and the little things little. I mean, the big things are about the truths of the gospel and the mission of the church. The little things are the little things that don't fall into those big categories. And living in harmony means that we understand that some are really little things. 
And we don't allow those little things to undermine the love that we have for each other. And so first, have unity of mind. Second, sympathy, or be sympathetic towards one another. It has to do with the love that we have for each other. It means we show concern when someone is in need. It means we console those who are in need of consolation. We encourage those who are downcast and are discouraged. It means that we're actually looking out for each other, that we have our eyes set and notice what's lacking in the other. Third, practice brotherly love. And Peter uses here the word Philadelphia. I mean, while there's a city in the United States that's called that name, the Greek word assumes a brotherhood or a family relationship. Peter uses this word for the family of God. That is, there is a specific kind of love that happens in the church among believers who have the same Heavenly Father and the same Lord and Savior. The word means to love someone simply because they're a fellow believer, even as you are. The fourth is have a tender heart. Our translation speaks of the heart. The original actually speaks of the intestines. Peter is speaking about feelings that come from deep inside. The idea is that we feel compassion for any believer that's suffering. And then finally, fifth, Peter speaks of having a humble mind. And he means that a person's entire mental state is taken up in an attitude of considering another person's needs ahead of our own. Peter's going to repeat that thought later on, chapter 5, verse 5, where he's going to say, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. That is, put on humility as if it's clothing that you put on. Get dressed with it. But in our text, he says, think in terms of humility. Make it a practice of thinking of others and their needs ahead of your own. And if I were to put verse 8 into one word, I would choose the word love. And Peter wants the church to be known for what Jesus commanded. John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And one of the great tragedies that befalls any church is when love for one another disappears. Look, I know there are times when when the church must struggle with others in our midst. Maybe it's false doctrines. Maybe it's unholy living. I mean, read Paul's letters to the Corinthians. You get a sense of that. I mean, sometimes, given the struggle in the church, the church can feel like a place that's, you know, less about unity of mind and tenderheartedness. You know, it must be remembered You know, that the church in Ephesus, which struggled against false teaching, in the end, that church was reprimanded by Jesus. See, Revelation 2 verse 4 records Jesus is saying to that church, but I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. And that's to say, even if we must struggle within the church for holiness and for purity of the doctrine that we teach, Jesus never lets the church off the hook. He calls on us to continue to be a people of love. That is, our concern for holiness and our concern for consistent doctrine is not inconsistent with the need to love the brotherhood. And so Peter teaching Christians what kind of a conduct is required of them in a culture where they're being persecuted states that Christians are to be known as a community of love. And you have to imagine that. I mean, the world out there might hate them, and some of them might have ended up in prison, but all believers knew that no matter what they faced, they always experienced the love of the people of God for one another. And might I say, it must be so today, and especially in this day in which so many are no longer attending church, that this point has to be stressed. You see, what's lacking in the life of so many so-called believers is love for the brotherhood, love for the family that Christ created by his own blood, the church. 
What's lacking is preferring one another over self and showcasing that the people of God have something unique. In a world where everyone's out for themselves, God calls his people to a lifestyle that's remarkably different. I mean, are you a Christian that's stopped attending church? So hear the words of Jesus. It's a rebuke. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. Repent that he might not have to come and remove your candlestick. Boy, that's a warning. Repent so that seasons of joy might return. Repent so that you might learn again how to live and how to love. Peter's writing to persecuted Christians. He wants them to remember the, the kind of conduct they're to exhibit. And through this, which you know we're going to call in chapter 4, verse 12, a fiery trial. But now he moves from the conduct they're to have among themselves to speaking about their conduct in the world. He's already spoken about this when we spoke of the attitude towards the emperor, towards slave owners, and especially of Christian women and their non-Christian husbands. But those were specific examples. Now he gives the general rule. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So let's begin by acknowledging that the command to love is not restricted only to loving fellow believers. Peter insists that it must also be related to the attitudes that we have to people outside of the church. And you think it's tough to love those inside the church. I mean, you try loving those people that reject your values and out of anger for who you are, are willing to put evil into your lap. But all of us who are believers know that Jesus left us a teaching in Matthew 5:44: Love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. But where does this doing good to enemies start? Or to put it another way, exactly what are we supposed to do? Notice how specific Peter is. And in many ways, there's nothing to do about the enemies. They're just there. So what's to be done? Peter's very detailed. Start this way. When someone does evil to you, don't you respond in kind. This gets repeated throughout the New Testament. Romans 12, verse 7 is almost identical to that. 1 Thessalonians 5, 15 says, make sure nobody pays back wrong for wrong. Well, that in itself is a tall order. Back to the Bible Canada recently wrapped up the Israel Experience 2022. And as usual, it proved to be a trip of a lifetime for those who attended. Witnessing firsthand the sites and locations where Jesus walked and taught is a surreal experience that can't help but make a profound impression on your walk in the Word. One guest wrote, My trip to Israel has tremendously impacted my faith journey by experiencing the Holy Land firsthand accompanied by competent archaeological, theological, and historical teaching, all made possible by expert planning. We're so honored and privileged to be able to host this experience for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're also so excited to announce the Israel Experience 2023 is now in its final stages of planning, and information can be found visiting backtothebible.ca or calling one 800 663 24 Revenge is never a Christian virtue. I mean, all revenge should be left to God. He's the perfect judge, and in the end, he will judge all men. Now, of course, if you're unable to get revenge for those who do evil against you because you're powerless against them, you might say, well, (laughs) the text doesn't even apply to me. 
But look at the next phrase that Peter uses. Don't pay back insult with an insult. The word Peter uses is the word reviling. To revile is to slander someone, to insult them. And even though we may lack the courage to revile someone in public, we all do it when we're with a friend and in private one-on-one. We all know how to spread rumors. We all know how to make sure that others know just how wicked someone has been to us. I mean, after all, it's a human trait. We pay back. When we're hurt, we look to hurt. It would seem that most people follow that rule of conduct in their own lives. But Peter insists that Christians don't respond that way. He says, we are to bless and then not content with that, he adds, that you may attain a blessing. Now, grammatically, the promise that a blessing will be granted to the believer, that might refer all the way back to verse 8 and 9, or it might specifically refer to the blessing of enemies. That is, God might be specifically reminding believers that he blesses those who bless their enemies, or he might be saying, you know, I'm blessing those who have unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love and a tender heart and a humble mind and who don't repay evil for evil and decide to bless their enemies. Now, I don't know how to decide which interpretation I should take. I'm sure that God blesses all who are faithful to the calling they have received, who act in accordance with the will of God in their lives. You know, in my ministry life, I've noticed something, that when I say it, well, you're not going to be surprised. I have never seen any person who has done it God's way and who's been obedient to God's purposes in his or her life, who will then say when they get to the end of their life, I just wish I hadn't done it God's way. I mean, things didn't turn out well for me. See, I've never met the person who has ever said that or who's ever experienced that. Now, that's not to say that it's easy to behave in the way that God prescribes. Of course it's hard. Of course it demands that we put aside our own self-will and humble ourselves and submit to God's way. It does demand sacrifice. But it always, hear me now, it always results in a blessing. Submit to God's rule of conduct and you're going to obtain a blessing. Let me say it the other way around now. I have in my ministry career met many, many people who have refused God's instruction for their lives and they end their lives with a profound sense of loss for what might have been, or people who say, if only I had it to do all over again, I wish I could have changed that. See, they got regret, sorrow, pain. I'll say this with certainty. It is difficult to bless your enemy and to look to do good to those who seek your undoing. Everything in our flesh rebels against such a prospect. We protest. It's not right, we say. And in truth, what the enemies of the faith were doing to Christians was not right. But Christ died for the godless. And his followers are also called to die to their own self-rights for those who are undeserving of blessing. And in this, Peter makes a promise. You're going to receive a blessing. Well, very good. Let's now go to Peter's rule for the general behavior of Christians, either within the church or within the world. He does this by quoting from Psalm 34, 12 to 16. But let's hear it from Peter's pen. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Well, notice that Peter begins with the word for. Oh, we can translate that as because. You know, I've said everything I've said to you because the following is true. And what's true is that God has made a promise. And notice to whom the promise is directed. It is for those who desire to live life and see good days. And you might wonder about that. I mean, aren't the people who are reading this letter 
being persecuted. I mean, they aren't loving life. At least we wouldn't think they are. Neither are they seeing good days. They're experiencing hardship and misery. Well, Peter wouldn't agree. Remember, he began this letter by telling this group of persecuted Christians that they were in a favored position. He reminded his readers that they were born again to a living hope. I mean, who else has got that? They had an inheritance that was imperishable. Who has that? I mean, every once in a while, I'll see a list of the world's richest people, and I'm always amazed at how old some of them look. I mean, think, how rich are they really? I mean, everything they own is going to be gone in a very short while, and then they're going to have to give an account of themselves before God. They're not rich. But how about the one who's poor in this world but has an imperishable inheritance in the world to come? What about them? So here's what I think about loving life. You know, it can't mean that we have a trouble-free life. Indeed, Peter didn't think that. Neither did the psalm that Peter quotes. That's because right after the quote, just a few verses later, David in the psalm, verse 19, says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him from them all. I mean, you think about that. The enjoyment of life is not a life that's free from troubles. Rather, to love life must mean that we're content with the life that God has assigned to us. And that brings us to the next line. Whoever would see good days. And notice that life is a gift from God, and so are good days. I mean, good days are those days in which we find good. And Peter doesn't say that they would be trouble-free days or days filled with pleasure, but he says good days. You see, when we find good, the day is good. So if we want to love life and have good days, Peter quotes David and says, you need to keep yourself from two things. The first, we need to keep our tongues from speaking evil and deceit. So speaking evil is what Peter's already taught us about. Don't repay anyone evil with evil. And now, since I've already mentioned that, says Peter, let me add one more item. Don't let evil come from your mouth. And we might be reminded of James 3, verse 6, where James says, the tongue is a world of evil. The tongue can, if given to evil, destroy both the person the evil is spoken against, but it also destroys the one who speaks the evil. That's because that's what evil is. Peter then goes further. We must keep our tongues from deceit. Deceit is a lie. Keep your tongue from getting people to believe something that's not true. So the first thing that we've got to avoid if we are to love life and see good days is we have to put a rein on our tongue. But we must also put a rein on our actions. In verse 11, we read we must, as Peter has already advised us, steer away from evil. But now notice we are told to pursue something that's good. Peace. Pursue peace. Have you ever noticed how fragile peace actually is? You can never take it for granted. We know that in the realm of foreign affairs, peace and tranquility is so easily destroyed, it results in hostility, eventually warfare. But this is also true in personal matters. How often has a family fallen from peace to hostility? How often has a church gone from a model church to suddenly one that descends into suspicion and chaos. Experience tells us these things happen frequently. So peace must be sought. It has to be pursued. That is, we all need to become experts in those things that lead to peace. And let me suggest some of those things. They will include not being easily angered, either by a slight or some thoughtless and cruel word that's spoken. Peace is also pursued when we take the time to try to understand something from the other person's perspective. You know, is that person really standoffish? Or is it possible that person is shy and insecure and is afraid to make contact? Is it possible that we give someone the benefit of the doubt? That leads to peace. 
Peace is also pursued when we reach out, when we forgive, or when we apologize. It's pursued when we seek peace over pride and arrogance. Now, Peter has told us that if we want to love life, and if we want to see good days, we will avoid evil both in the tongue and in the action, and secondly, that we're going to be actively looking for those things that lead to peaceful relationships with other people, both with believers and with non-believers. And with that, we see a promise. The promise is God watches, God cares, God sees what we're doing, God sees how we're talking, God sees whether we care about the kind of conduct that honors him. And when those who seek to obey God offer their prayers to God, our passage promises he hears. But when those who ignore the commands of God pray, they may find that God has turned his face from them. Of course, Peter's not telling us how God's going to treat every one of his adversaries, but we do well to notice that we never want to have God as our adversary. And so, what do we make of this important passage? You know, Christian conduct, even in a hostile culture, is of great effect. Love the family of God, bless your persecutors, live according to God's commands, and you will see good days. And is that important in our day? Oh, yes, it is. It will make men and women seek Christ, and the gospel will seem favorable in the wider culture. Thanks for your message, John. Let me ask you, though, how do we as individual Christians actually come against evil in our world? Yeah, because it seems to be saying, uh, it's a good question, Ben, because it seems to be saying in the passage that, you know, we just uh, don't do anything about evil. But, uh, you know, I, I think there are a couple of things. I mean, obviously, our world in which we have more power as believers in the culture in which we live, I mean, we may want to, I mean, speak up over things that are truly evil. I think we should, especially, you know, over things like, you know, abortion and those things that we know are dishonoring to God and are a horrible thing. However, at the same time, I think what this passage is speaking about is evil that's done to us personally. And here, believers must be known as people who don't seek revenge. So yes, our culture may provide justice for us, but we never respond in a personal vindictive fashion however we can, and whenever God gives opportunity, we seek even to bless those who have harmed us. That's the calling of God. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Under Pressure, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. June is back to the Bible Canada's fiscal year end. As such, it's a crucial month for the ministry financially. Despite the financial impact of the last couple of years, Back to the Bible Canada has still been able to provide sound Bible teaching and engagement resources, and even produce new ministry resources thanks to the loyal support of our listeners. This year, our fiscal year end target is $409,000. And to help us reach that, Several generous ministry supporters have graciously offered to match your donations this month up to $100,000. That means your gift has double the impact. We'd be so grateful if you might consider helping us achieve our financial target this fiscal year end. To make your gift today or for more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.com. 
www.thepurpleshouse.ca.